0: All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Mining Matters podcast brought to you by Fisher Phillips. My name is Chris Peterson. And with me, as always, is Arthur Wolfson. Arthur, how are you doing today? Good. How are you, Chris? I'm doing excellent. I'm very excited about today's episode. Uh, We've got a very special guest joining our podcast today. And in my mind, one of the foundations of the practice of mine safety
1: law, uh, Mr. Tim Means. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Chris, thank you so much. It's uh it as they say on these things, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: <laughs> yeah, so we're all virtual still, right, with the pandemic and uh, you know, joining each other on a Zoom call. So we're, you know, getting that personal touch as, as we can over the over the internet. But um, so Tim, yeah, again, thank you very much for joining us. Could you start off by, you know, maybe telling us a little bit about yourself, make sure our audience remembers right you know, the importance of. The name Mr. Tim means in, in mine safety law.
1: Sure, the uh, I I'm am retired. Uh, I've been retired for about five years. I was a partner at Kroll and Mooring, and a substantial part of my practice was mine safety, which we'll talk about a little bit coming up. But um, I I still do a little consulting when uh, Dan Wolf, uh, who uh, Tim Biddle and I trained as a baby lawyer growing up, and he he. Mm-hmm. He loved mind safety uh, as did Tim and I, and uh, and really took on the practice. So he is the, the head of the mind safety practice at Crowe and Mooring today. And uh, when he needs help, which isn't often enough as far as I'm concerned, uh, he calls on me to help out a little bit. Uh, but otherwise, um, I'm retired. I, I graduated uh, from Dartmouth College in 1969, three years ahead of Hank Moore. Oh, uh, who okay. you guys will know. Um, and we worked together uh, many times over the years. Yeah. Uh, I was a law school dropout. I went right to law school out of college and hated it and uh, kicked around the country for about uh, six years as, a, as a, I went to seminary. I uh, got a master's in public administration. I, uh, I was a manual laborer, I was a social worker, just kind of discovering myself uh, and uh, wound up in, in Colorado. And I got a job with the State Association of Counties where I, uh, I learned about the regulatory process and uh, intergovernmental relations, working with federal and state regulations. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was so much fun that I decided, maybe I did like law school after <laughs> all, and I went back. And okay. uh, uh, I, I graduated law school in 1978, which was, of course, the year the MINE Act took effect. And I, I went right from law school to Crow and Mooring. And one of my first cases was a mining case, a mine safety case. Oh, and it was, um, uh, it was the Monterey Coal Company case. within a month of my arrival at the firm. I got involved in this. Tim Biddle asked me to help him out defending a mine operator, production operator. Although really that's a misnomer. I, a, um, an owner, a mine owner, because the mine was not yet uh, in production, it was just in development. Okay. They had an independent contractor on the site, it was a Wayne Mine in West Virginia. And the the expert contractor had about 80 people there sinking a shaft. And one of the the contractor's employees was killed in the process. Mm -hmm. There was only one person on the site from my client, Monterey kind of a safety supervisor. He'd made sure the specifications were being followed. Okay. He was the owner's representative on the property, yep. but he was totally uninvolved in, in the work being done. But Emshaw, although the Mine Act had just been amended in 77 uh-huh. to amend the definition of mine operator to include independent contractors, um, MSHA nonetheless cited my client. And uh, so we were hired to defend and to show how under the Mine Act, it was the independent contractor who was liable for the violation yeah. for every reason imaginable. It was his equipment, his employees, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You That's know exactly. the drill. You know the drill. Mm-hmm. But MSHO um, just st- stuck to its guns. And we litigated that case, again, interpreting the Mine Act, of mm-hmm. uh, the 77 uh, Act. We inter- litigated that case for several years Uh, and it was so much fun. (laughs) Literally, I I got imbued with a sense of of fighting for justice and fairness, Um, and I've done as much of it as I could ever since, and it was just, um, it got me started defending mine operators against overzealous and unfair enforcement of the law, and uh, boy, that's a very satisfying career. Interesting, interesting,
0: yeah, I mean, just thinking about how you've
1: described your
0: journey into, you know, mind safety practice, it parallels, you know, I think a lot of what I've done, right, and Arthur, you know, I'm sure the same thing with you, you know, obviously, besides the manual labor in the seminary and <laughs> the, the journey, but um, yeah, you know, getting into the practice and um, and I'm, I agree with you 100%, right, I feel, I feel that same sense of you know, pushing it back against that overzealous government enforcement is very satisfying. Um, and you know, good people, right? I'm sure has that been your experience? You know, working with with good people in
1: the mining industry. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it, that's one of the the keystones to my my years of practice. I, you know, there's good people and bad people everywhere, yeah. but I have found proportionate, you know, per capita basis, miners are really really better people than most right. <laughs> they are really you know i make jokes about the salt of the earth or down to earth but they are real genuine people who are so proud of the work they do the work is so important and they so appreciate it when you can help them defend yeah. themselves against when they know they're right and yeah. they're being taken advantage of or being pushed around so hey, uh,
2: hey hey tim i i have often said i and no offense to present company but I've said over the course of my career, I'd rather spend the day with a group of minors than a group of lawyers. Um, and, you Amen. know, this Zoom world, this virtual world has kind of robbed me of that lately. And I'm kind of hoping we get back to return to uh, the way it was. I no. definitely hear that. Yeah. What's something? Um you know one of the th- we wanted to have you on today and we could talk all day about your experiences which is great and maybe it's a topic for a future podcast but you know in your retirement you're not just uh, sitting around on the uh, doing nothing you've actually written a novel with a mind safety plot no and that's what we wanted to um, maybe talk to you a little bit about today here uh, and and share some of the insights from that novel with our listeners, and then at the end we can uh, tell them how to order it. Um, so how did it how did it come to you to um, uh, to to write a novel with a mind safety plot? What, what inspired that?
1: Well, I, I think it was the fact that there were some things that concerned me over the years of practice. Um, some things that concerned me about the law and uh, defects, frankly. In, in the Mine Act. Um, you know, I, I think MSHA has done wonderful things for miners uh, overall. And the Mine Act has been a, a great contribution to uh, the health and safety of, of, of mining and miners, but it's not perfect by any means. And some of the flaws in the Act endanger miners, ironically. I mean, the, the Act is intended to protect them, but there's some things in the Act that, that expose them to risk and, uh, and, and injury and death. And so there are a couple of re- things I really wanted to tell the world about. And I thought writing briefs, you know, you don't get a whole lot of uh, traction in terms of moving the needle and public policy and the law um, because you get dismissed as, well, it's just somebody who's got an axe to grind. But if I could tell the story of these defects in the law, and the and the wonderful people in the mining industry would tell the world about them through the course of a suspenseful novel that people would get engaged in. Mm. Um, I thought I would have better success. You know, I uh, I'm, I'm telling the story of 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 an industry of people and their their regulators and the relationship between the two yeah. and and how there's you know uh, people people. Uh, good things and bad things. Well-intentioned people do bad things inadvertently, sometimes even uh, intentionally. And uh, uh, where the law can be changed to mitigate the harms that can be done, um, then I, 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 I want to be part of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the book is called
2: Copper Canyon, and uh, we're not going to give it away, the plot line, (laughs) because, you know, we hope our readers will or our listeners will read it. Um, But that's an interesting, um, interesting point there, Tim, uh, that you wanted to use this as a vehicle for for highlighting, I guess, the lessons you've learned throughout your career. Um, Can you just take us through what's the process of writing a novel? I've never done it. What's it like? Well,
1: I, I'd never done it before either. I, I think everybody has their own approach, probably. Every novelist. Um, I've, I've read lots of stories about actually practicing lawyers who would get up at four o'clock in the morning every day and work on their novel. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, I was too busy work, working on my law practice to write a novel <laughs> until I retired. But um, I, you know it, it was uh, I, I wrote it out longhand and then I typed it up Mm-hmm. And I retyped it and I changed it and I edited it and I edited it and I read it and then I edited it. And then I got feedback from my wife, who's a good writer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I, I edited some more. My, my, my main key uh, was multitasking. When I would go swimming in my neighborhood pool, swimming laps, I would get so bored. And I found that if I plotted the book as I swam back and forth, back and forth, thought about all the twists and turns, mm-hmm. um, and then I got out of the pool and I wrote them all down. It, it worked mm-hmm. out very well. I was swimming was much less boring that way, and it was it really worked out very well. It was yeah. fun. So, one of
2: the things I noticed in reading the in reading the novel um, was that, and this maybe touches on a little bit of what what we've already talked about is is the characters are so well developed, um, and in my practice, I, I've been doing mine safety law now for almost 15 years. And it's amazing to me the role of the personality in the practice, right? Who? What EMCHA inspector did you get? How did the company escort handle the EMCHA inspector or work with the EMCHA inspector? How did the superintendent work with the field office supervisor? And we, we've all seen it matters have gone well matters have gone sideways <laughs> and the personality just means so much did, did that is that oh, your experience and, and did it, that it, inform your character oh, development
1: arthur it's so true it's so true i couldn't agree more it meaning it, it, my law practice was a study of human relations you know? <laughs> and i think everyone's is yeah um and you watch the dynamics between people but there are there were many people in the course of my four decades of litigating mine safety cases who, who made an impression on me, positive or negative. And they're in the book. Um, sometimes sometimes they're hybridized. Sometimes there's a blend of different characteristics. No one person is, is portrayed singularly, uh, accurately in the book, but uh, the special investigator with a gun in his briefcase, I had him in a case, okay? <laughs> And uh, uh, the overzealous inspector who is just bound and determined to find a violation, you know, mm-hmm. he has to reinterpret the regulations to do it, but he's going to do it. Yeah. Uh, hardworking foreman who naively, sometimes guile, guilelessly uh, set themselves up for prosecution because they just want to help the Emshaw inspector. Mm-hmm. And boy, that can be, that can be a mistake. You need to know your rights. And you need to know the dangers, your legal liabilities. So, uh, and it's it, it been a sad, I mean, some sad cases. You guys have probably been involved in them too, where you've been brought in too late. Mm-hmm. The guy, the, the, the person, the, the foreman, the, the uh, safety supervisor, whoever it is, has already said way too much. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially after an accident, people feel yeah. terrible. The miners feel so awful that something has happened to their colleagues, their fellow miners, that they have this guilt. They must've done something wrong. And, yeah. and, they're, and they're, they're punishing themselves and they bare their souls, even when you know they're going way beyond what may be true. But they, yeah. they think, I, if only I had done this, if only I had done that. And boy, when you do that in front of a special investigator, uh, your goose is cooked. So, and, and and then, and then they call in the lawyer. No, it's not how it needs yeah. to work. So if I, you know, if I had any advice for, uh, uh, for a, uh, a minor, especially as somebody in, in management from section four and on up, it would be never, never go into a special investigation without a trained mind safety lawyer at your side. Yeah.
0: That's so, that's so powerful, Tim. I remember, um, unfortunately right my first fatal investigation an accident had happened minor had lost his life and that's what struck me immediately when I went into that room and I saw grown men sitting at a table crying is how emotionally charged those situations are right so it's easy to be on the outside and say oh of course you need to know your rights and train but until you've been through that right you need to uh realize just how emotionally charged those situations are right So I think that's a great point that you're that you're saying right now Yeah, yeah I, I
2: think so too and I, I actually thought one of the themes that that came from the book is really what we're talking about is these um frontline managers, these site level managers, whether they're a Section foreman, or some minds call them a production supervisor, or a maintenance manager, or that safety manager. But those, the, the the right at site level. I mean, they're really they're really in the the thick of it, right? They have so much exposure if they're not careful. Don't don't you agree? Absolutely,
1: absolutely. They they. It's really sad because so much responsibility uh, are responsible for safety and production at the same time. Uh, it it's really it 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 pushes the limits of what one person can do. And uh, uh, you know, if I if I could change anything uh, in the mining world in, in a particular situation, I would I would uh, number one, I would train the section supervisor, the the on site uh, uh, management representative. Uh, uh, the uh, I would train him in in his rights and liabilities. Um, and train him in how to do his job, and train him what the law is, and give him then give him all the resources in the world. You could, I know, budgetary constraints and and, and costs and, uh, and and profits and all are, are a rough calculus and, and and a and a difficult uh, set of constraints. But uh, you need the supervisor to be free to supervise. Mm-hmm. He needs to have the manpower. I, I use he, you know, generically. Uh, for males or females, but he needs to have the resources to do his job so he doesn't have to then go in and start producing, uh, start running the drill or, uh, or the mining machine. Uh, and, it, and it's too tempting, of course, because supervisors are responsible for production again and safety. And and if they feel like they don't have the resources and the job's not getting done, somebody didn't show up for work that day, somebody gets gets hurt or they strain their back, he jumps in. He, the tendency is overwhelming to jump in and start doing the job. And when he's doing the job, he can't be watching everything that needs to be watched to make sure that safe mining conditions are maintained. So it's it's a terrible uh, position to be in because you're, you're right there. And if something goes wrong, you're the one they're going to blame. Yeah. 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 Well, we could talk
2: about this all day. I mean, there's so much more we could get into and and and, and your book definitely highlights that uh, conundrum um, for those folks. Um, and then maybe we'll love to do a follow up with you at some point, Tim, um, with with our podcast. but a couple of just a couple of questions to sort of to wrap up talking about the book here. what What do you hope that that readers would
1: will take away from your novel? Oh, well, um, there's, there's lots of things. I hope, I hope they will take away the fact that, aside from the fact that uh, miners are, are fantastic people and they go through a lot to make our, our standard of living what it is. We couldn't live without them and their contribution, and yet they expose themselves to terrible risks. Um, I, I think I want them to understand that the law is not perfect, and we can change it. We can, we can amend the law, we Congress can amend it if enough people demand it. And there's a whole, I I've got uh, a dozen ways that the Mine Act can be amended to make it uh, better serve its purpose of protecting uh, miners. And uh, I, um, I talk about some of them in the book explicitly, the, the temporary reinstatement provision of the Mine Act is a, is a very disturbing, provision. It's well intended. I understand why Congress did it, but it has a a terrible flaw in it. And that is that um, you have to take back, essentially, if a minor, we all know about uh, minors' uh, employment insurance, right? You, You make safety complaints all the time so that if you ever get disciplined for uh, back-talking your supervisor or insubordination or absenteeism or whatever, you could say, no, no, it was the yeah. safety complaints that I made. That's why I was disciplined. That's why I was terminated. Yeah. And, and as a result, you have minors who are unsafe minors, lazy miners, dishonest minors, and they can't be terminated, essentially, because they've got this miners' employment insurance. MSHEL will put them back to work under temporary reinstatement. And even if they were, you can prove ultimately that they were fired because of unsafe practices or uh, being bad workers, absentee workers or whatever, even if you can prove that, because of temporary reinstatement, they're gonna get their job back and they're gonna get to keep it for at least months while MSHA investigates and the case is litigated. Sometimes temporary reinstatement has lasted for over a year. And it's very disturbing, especially if you have a, a reckless, unsafe minor who then imperils all of his brethren. And, and my suggestion in the book is that Congress amend the law to allow administrative law judges to order economic reinstatement instead of temporary reinstatement. So uh, even you protect the minor, you serve the purposes of Congress uh, by not making the minor afraid to make safety complaints because he'll lose his job, um, you protect him economically, but you don't expose other miners to the hazards that an unsafe miner uh, would create if brought back into the mine. The other major point I think that comes out in the book is that MSHA investigates mine accidents. They're, they're charged with investigating mine accidents. And you know there, there's some sense to that, right? They're the experts in mine safety and health, but they are also interested parties because EMSha's whole job Is to prevent accidents by regulation, Mm -hmm. by enforcement. And if accidents happen, there's a huge question is raised: how did that happen? Is there something wrong with the law? Is there something wrong with enforcement? Did somebody on EmSHA side not do his job? And Emshaw, by human nature, tends to not see its own faults, not see its own failings. We all do. Um, And that's why we have various measures to to backstop that and to counteract that. And when is investigating mine accidents, they always, virtually always, find fault with the mine operators, some some safety violation. I mean, that's their that's their default position. Every now and then you can persuade them that it was lightning that caused the, the <laughs> mine explosion. <laughs> But that's 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 not very often. And and uh, and you, you all know they referenced the Sago mine disaster. It was but that it ultimately they had to concede, okay, it was lightning, although the operator facilitated the lightning from hurting people because they left <laughs> rails underground that could conduct the electricity. But anyway, that's another story. The fact of the matter is, I have seen mine invest mine accident investigations where they the agency jumped to the conclusion. That the operator had done uh, various things that caused the violation, and it wasn't true. Sometimes, it may have just been a pure accident. So the uh, in the Jim Walter mine uh, explosion, uh, it was a terrible, terrible situation and heartbreaking. You had an uh, explosion and a roof fall, and some miners were trapped and their brothers ran in to save them. They, they rushed in to rescue their fallen brethren. And uh, God forbid it, it happened, the worst thing that could possibly happen, uh, there was another accident, a huge explosion. And uh, 13 miners who ha- had rushed into the mine to rescue their, their fellow miners Uh, were were killed. A terrible explosion. And MSHA investigated and it issued about a dozen unwarrantable failure violations, uh, which they said were contributory to that accident. Uh, And the company, you know, so many mining companies, um, especially if they're publicly held, uh, don't want to fight. They don't want the publicity. They don't want the the, the issue in the news, and so they 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 settle the case. They they go away. They accept the, the violations, and they go away. But this mine operator said, "No, we did nothing wrong. It wasn't our fault, and we don't. We understand why the miners raced in to save their 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 brothers, and so we we've got to fight. And they they dug in and." It took several years of litigation, but we got every one of those violations, every one of the unwarrantables was vacated. The ALJ, who was was a former solicitor on MSHA's side, a very uh, balanced guy, but he said none of these violations uh, caused the accident. And when all was said and done, there was one, one citation was left standing and it was uh, uh, assessed at $5,000, non-SNS, uh, not unwarrantable. Emshaw uh, a- appealed and, uh, to the review commission and lost. And uh, so well, over a million dollars in civil penalty had been assessed, $5,000 in the end was all that was assessed. So it was a great example of where MSHA had jumped to the conclusion that the mine operator did all these things which must have caused the explosion. And in fact, it did none of those things and they didn't cause the explosion. So, just an example, And but the interesting thing is MSHA refused to correct its accident report. Even though, even though it had been exposed as erroneous, all these uh, charges and explanation of how the accident happened, they refused to correct the report. And um, uh, even after the, the commission had upheld the ALJ's decision. And uh, so, you know, they, that's really disturbing. And, and EMSHA shouldn't be investigating mine accidents is my, my point. We have, the, we have the NTSB that investigates aviation accidents, even though the FAA regulates aviation safety, right? And mm-hmm. But if the FAA doesn't investigate plane crashes, the NTSB does. A neutral third party, an independent uh, third party. Same with railroad accidents, pipeline accidents. The NTSB investigates them. And you have the Chemical Safety Board. You guys probably worked with the Chemical Safety Board mm-hmm. investigating a refinery and chemical plant explosions. You need an independent third party to really get to the bottom. If you're gonna find out how accidents happened so you can prevent them in the future. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: interesting. Well, Tim, uh, importantly, the book is called Copper Canyon. And you know, Christmas is coming up and people may, have uh, some few uh, last-minute gifts they need to buy, especially for those uh, mine safety enthusiasts out there. Uh, so how do you order Copper Canyon? How do you get your
1: hands on a copy of it? I'm, I'm so glad you asked. Um, it, it's very easy, uh, and you can get shipping right away, Amazon.com. If you go to Amazon.com and put in Copper Canyon by Tim Means, M-E-A-N-S, Tim Means. Um, it'll come up and you can get a Kindle copy yeah, uh, or you can get a paperback copy. And there's a very attractive illustration on the paperback copy. I guess you see it on the website. My son, uh, who's a law professor, drew the cover. It's a, it's a mine portal, um, but it's very beautiful anyway. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it would make a wonderful Christmas gift to somebody who cares about <laughs> minors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Great.
2: Well, we uh, appreciate having you on our podcast, on our, our Mining Matters podcast. We could continue this discussion, um, have another session. Maybe we'll have uh, you and your uh, fellow Big Green alum Hank Moron, and you guys can plot out the future of the Mine Act. But, <laughs> Everything um, wrong
0: probably... with the Mine Act? <laughs>
1: I have such a list. I have such a list, and I'm sure Hank is that homeless. Right.
0: Right. Chris, what do you think?
2: Are uh, wrapping up our uh, probably our last session for 2021. Any concluding thoughts?
0: Yeah, you know it's been um, an interesting year. I, I guess earlier this year I thought we were sort of on the on the road to recover through the pandemic, and then I'm it's it's been delayed. <laughs> so here's to a, a 2022 that we get back to normal and get to. You know get out in the field and on site and you know work hand in hand with the miners and um you know start enjoying you know some good people in the industry again so you're here, here so
2: merry christmas to all of our listeners and happy new year mm-hmm. and uh, chris and i will be back uh with some more uh sessions of mining matters and yeah and maybe we're mr means
0: again right
2: thank you so I much think for we'll joining i think my we'll
1: pleasure.
2: have to thank do you. a follow-up my pleasure
1: follow up. Thank you, gentlemen.
2: Uh, Well, thanks, Tim, for joining us. And we wish everyone a happy new year and we'll talk to you soon.
1: This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.